Welcome to the Book a Week podcast, jointly hosted by the SEPT University Library and the Center for Research on Architecture and Urbanism. Hi, and welcome to this episode of a Book a Week podcast. I'm Sunaina Shah. I'm a practicing architect based in Ahmedabad. My research interests lie in the areas of architectural practice, history and theory and it is through these that I engage with the built world. I am particularly interested in issues related to modernity, art and architectural history, cultural studies and social theory. Today I am here with Dr. Ebba Koch. She is a leading scholar and an authority on architecture, art and court culture of the Mughals of South Asia and their connections to Central Asia, Iran, and Europe. She has published extensively on the subject and has taught at the universities of Vienna, Oxford, and Harvard. Her book on the Taj Mahal, titled The Complete Taj Mahal, is a definitive study of the monument and one that I would highly recommend. The subject of our discussion today is mainly going to be a book that she edited in collaboration with Anil Anushar called The Mughal Empire from Jahangir to Shah Jahan, Art, Architecture, Politics, Law and Literature, published by Marg in 2017. The book is a collective volume of articles written by various eminent scholars and it takes a multidisciplinary approach to bring together historical, literary, architectural, and social studies in order to form a more nuanced understanding of the period at hand. In doing so, the book illustrates a wide range of possible approaches and methodologies that one could employ when dealing with textual objects. Hi, Ebba, and welcome to our podcast, A Book a Week. We are so honored to have you here with us. So good afternoon, Sunaina. It's a it's a great pleasure for me to talk to you and to everyone else uh, via this new medium. Yeah. And I look forward to our conversation. Thank you. So let's get started. What really strikes me about this book is that uh, Shah Jahan, the the patron of Taj Mahal, is so scarcely studied. Um, in your introduction, you make a reference to the historian Mohammed Kafi Khan, who writes that there is no better ruler than Shah Jahan, and yet his reign is the least studied period in Mughal history. A lot of attention has been given to the reigns of Akbar and Aurangzeb, and some to Jahangir. Where do you think this bias comes from? Yeah, I mean, the book, uh, you know, will hopefully uh, uh, give a better understanding of Shah Jahan's reign and uh, also about the research which has been uh, uh, done on on Shah Jahan. And uh, when I uh, began to study Shah Jahan, I noticed, you know, that I think uh, this attention which has been given to Akbar is because it's a dynamic phase of empire building under uh, this great ruler. And uh, Aurangzeb, again, we have a a negative dynamic. So both phases have attracted uh, more interest. 
And I also felt that historian ran away still under the impact of Shah Jahan's imperial propaganda of the court rhetoric, which presented his reign as a golden age, you know, as an eternal spring where nothing changes. And this seems to have uh, uh, impacted also uh, the historians that they thought, you know, in Shah Jahan's um, reign, uh, there is not so much interesting development to uh, be dealt with. You know, I mean, Akbar is quite the popular uh, favorite, but so far before this book, how have the fields of art and architectural history um, looked at the reign of Shah Jahan? Yeah, obviously, uh, is a, uh, you know, Akbar is a great hero of secular India, the mm. great visionary, according to Mughal chronicles and also according to modern appraisal. And he was also a favorite of the British, who appreciated especially uh, his architecture. Mm. So uh, Ferguson, you know, the, the, the first great historian on, on Indian architecture, he expressed uh, a feeling of many of his countrymen when he uh, when he preferred, you know, the, the vitality and the exuberant originality of Akbar's architecture, while uh, he considered the style of Shah Jahan a sort of effeminate effeminate elegance, these are the words uh, he, he is using. And this, in a way, has also affected research, you know, research and, and uh, documentation and also the preservation of your monuments, when you so wish, because we have a full documentation of the archaeological survey of India on Fatipur Sikri mm. and also on Akbar's tomb in Sikandra, but nothing was published by the survey on the Taj Mahal. And, you know, no uh, full documentation, survey, or, or, or description, or analysis. And uh, my book, which came out in 2006, was, was uh, the, first, the first documentation of Shadrachan, and also analysis, and history of construction, and also an analysis of its symbolism. Yes. So coming to this book more specifically, could you tell us the story behind the, the subject at hand, which is Jahangir to Shah Jahan? How did you arrive at these two rulers? I mean, you know, why not Akbar to Shah Jahan, for example, or something of that sort? Yeah, I got interested in, 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 in Shah Jahan uh, through his patronage of, of architecture. And his reign is a, is a period of high architectural awareness. You know, we have a large number of preserved buildings, not only that, but we also have, and this is unique in, in his time, also a, a full description of the buildings, which is an, a new genre, in, which is integrated into the imperial history and allows us to assess Mughal architecture in its own terms. In the history, uh, to integrate uh, these uh, very detailed descriptions of architecture into the imperial, 
is something we have on a different in a different note in in the, in the uh, text which which Jahangir wrote on his own reign because here we don't have description of buildings or, or architecture but we have descriptions of nature and uh, to me it seems that Shah Jahan took inspiration from this uh, this uh, scientific interest to his own creations to his own to his own buildings. So we have here already a connection, you know, uh, this is, uh, exact documentation in, uh, in, 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 in both interest in this, in both rulers. And the more I looked at uh, Jahangir's patronage or Jahangir as a ruler and Shah Jahan's as a ruler, I, I, I saw it as a unit, you know, as a creative reconceptualization of the Mughal Empire mm. as it had been imagined by Akbar on the basis of what uh, Humayun and uh, for, before him, Babu and Humayun had initiated. Mm. So we can speak here of an of a, of a early modernity which is uh, characterized by, you know, humanism, self-will, uh, a scientific interest, the discovery of nature, exploration of the potential of art, especially then, as I mentioned, the experimentation with language, mm. and also the confidence of the state to articulate a cultural uniqueness for its domain. Mm. So, um, and the interesting aspect is that you know, Shah Jahan tried to distance himself from his mm. father. Mm. His historians lash out at the reign of uh, Jahangir and yeah. criticize especially Nur Jahan, you know. But on the other hand, you have a structural unity where whatever, you know, uh, Jahangir in a, in a way initiates is taken up by Shah Jahan. Mm. And um, yeah, one could say perfected according to his own standards. Mm. So this is a time of great formalism and mm. centralization uh, and, and in the form of government and also in the way how architecture is uh, perceived mm. and also created according to uh, certain formal principles. Yeah, that is that is very interesting. What you spoke of these aspects of modernism, and it it also kind of um, takes me to something that you mentioned about uh, Ferguson saying that Shah Jahan's work was was quite effeminate, and that makes me um, wonder about things like ornamentation in architecture, but uh, and also in the field of painting, and and this time that they ruled and their exchanges between Europe and, and India, you know, what was, what was that like? I mean, in, in painting and in architecture between the two sort of areas of the world. Yeah, this has greatly interested me from the very beginning because one strand of my work is this uh, documentation of architecture, uh, surveys and analysis of of buildings, but uh, uh, then I had, uh, you know, when I started to work on the movers, I was uh, drawn to certain elements in the architecture, in the painting, 
And this is, uh, I realized this was a distinct Europeanness, you know, mm. an interest into European art and uh, uh, architecture, which uh, is a very important element in this syncretism, which uh, represents uh, Mughal art, you know, which goes back to various traditions, Central Asian, also Iranian and obviously older Indian heritage. Yeah, and as a European art historian, obviously I got very interested in this European element. Mm. So in a way, now in, in hindsight, I realized I'm, I was really a pioneer in this new wave of interculturalness. <laughs> and uh, sometimes, you know, especially lately, I feel this is getting more interest in what I have been doing since architecture. Since we are talking about architecture also, while I have you on that topic, um, I just want to ask you, how do the two greatest builders compare, Shah Jahan and Akbar? Um, and how did Shah Jahan look at Akbar's legacy? And could you also then expand on how architecture for you is a primary source that represents a vital clue in the study of um, social and political history. So should I start with Akbar or Shah Jahan or with me? <laughs> <laughs> no, Akbar obviously, you know, and Shah Jahan, they were both great builders, but they represent different phases, you know, mm. of uh, the architectural uh, development. Mm. So Akbar's was the foundation period of Mughal architecture. He mm. undertook great constructions throughout his empires. Empire built especially fortress palaces. You had Agra, Fatipur Sikri, Ajmer, Allahabad, also at Lahore, mm. and but also mosques. Uh, uh, you know, Afatipur Sikri and Ajmer, and very important, he constructed a great mausoleum for his uh, father Humayun at Delhi, which uh, became a signature building uh, of Mughal mausolea and perhaps of Mughal architecture altogether. And uh, stylistically, uh, his builders created under his uh, reign, in his reign, uh, uh, dramatics, uh, one could say, uh, supra-regional synthesis in which a Central Asian, then Indian metropolitan and regional styles were brought together and unified by the new construction material red sandstone. Now, red sandstone was highlighted with, with, white, with white marble, which we find already in the architecture of the Sultans. But the Mughals used it so systematically that I felt they were aware of the Shastric recommendations mm. that, uh, you know, white should be used for, for buildings of Brahmins. Mm -hmm. and red for the buildings of Kshatriyas. So in, in, in a way, the Mughals uh, associated themselves architecturally with the highest level of the Indian uh, caste system. And then under Shah Jahan, uh, you know, it has been uh, described as a classical phase of uh, Mughal architecture. And what we can observe is a new aesthetic and in, in a way, now architecture is very systematically uh, developed as a 
form of expression of a specific state ideology of centralized authority and uh, should bring about harmony and balance. So we have a we have a rigid application of principles, you know, according which uh, architecture is constructed. Now they were not laid down in writings. This was also interesting for me to see that the Mughals did not translate the Shastric literature, how to build correctly. But, and this is what I tried to do in the uh, Taj Mahal, to abstract the principles of construction from the architecture itself. Like, you know, uh, symmetrical planning, uh, I mean, or geometrical planning, and perfect bilateral symmetries, that's a, a leading principle, hierarchy, and then proportional triadic division, uniformity of shapes, sensuous attention to details, that's also important, you know, the appeal to the senses, and here also the selective use of naturalism plays a, a great role, which is then linked to symbolism. Basically, what we have is a systematization of, of architecture, you know, and, mm. and a refinement of architecture, right. And, uh, right, which reflects his, uh, I think, so at least, state ideology. Yes. So basically, if we take, a, for an example, uh, the audience halls of Shah Jahan. I, this, uh, so I worked together since 92 with, uh, with an Indian architect called Richard Barrow. So we surveyed, we surveyed the audience halls, uh, all three of them, you know, Agra Delhi at Lahore. And then I waited what is written in the textual sources about the architecture. So here, you know, Shah Jahan builds them to provide shade for his uh, nobility, so they are not exposed to the rain and sun when they stand before him in audience. Mm. But I had a feeling the architecture was uh, expressing something different, because when you analyze the ground plan, the way it's constructed as a oblong a hypostyle hall with a wider nave in the center, which leads to the emperor's throne, you know, his mm. Jarokai. Uh, in, in the audience hall, mm. then uh, I, I saw some similarities with mosque architecture of the period. Mm. So basically, in the architecture, Shah Jahan expressed, you know, that he was uh, not only a worldly, but also a spiritual authority. And, you know, by, by sort of using this mosque plan for his audience hall. Mm -hmm. So, this would be a way, you know, and also some, some, sometimes, you know, very often we get uh, different information from, from, the, from the buildings and also from paintings and from the texts. What are, what are these texts like? You know, I mean, in a way, Shah Jahan just develops a, a, a Shah Jahani order, if I can call it that. You yeah, know? right, right, yeah. What is new in the history is what we don't get under Jahangir and what we don't get under Akbar, what we don't, but we do get it in Humayun, you know, Tandamir mm. wrote the Kanone Humayun. So my new book is on, on Humayun, by the way. Oh, wow, great. So it's a new uh, sort of assessment of Humayun in, in connection which a museum, the Aga Khan Trust for Culture, is building. 
uh, outside of Homeos Tumgarden, underground. So his interest in architecture is explained there first. So in this way, we have also texts uh, dealing with architecture and human spirit. Mm. And in Shadahan's time, they uh, are integrated, I think I mentioned it, into the imperial history. So we get very detailed descriptions of his buildings. Mm-hmm. For me, terminology is very important, you know, to assess uh, Mughal architecture in its own terms and not mm-hmm. use terms which have been developed in a different uh, um, sort of architectural context. Mm-hmm. Just let's take crypt. I don't like to use crypt for underground chambers <laughs> in, the tomb, in the tombs, yeah. <laughs> And here in Shah Jahan, we are really spoiled with Shah Jahan because we get all this done. Yes. And we also, we also, from poetry, we can also, uh, poetry is also important, so we can deduct um, also the symbolism of, of, of a building. I wanted to mention a, a, a quote from your book. Uh, where you write that to say nothing of the Taj Mahal as a Neoplatonic concept in reverse, realizing here on earth and on a gigantic scale, the ideal paradisical dwelling for his deceased wife in order to guarantee a counter image for her in the immaterial world. I mean, that's, that's Beautiful. Could you help us unpack this sentence a little bit and and explain it to us? Yeah. So we get this in the text, you know, that uh, that the building is a sample, uh, a symbol, and a sham, you know, mm. of the paradisical house, which uh, uh, should be provided for Mumtaz in paradise. So how was this done architecturally? Mm. Because the plan of the Taj Mahal follows what I have identified as the typical uh, uh, Mughal riverfront garden at Agra. Mm. You know, a specific form of the Chahabach, of the four-part garden, mm. where the building is not in the center of the garden, but where it's placed on a terrace overlooking the riverfront, you know, right. and also flanked by two towers. This is how Agra looked like in Mughal times. It was something like a utopia of the past, if you so wish. We also have paintings which give us a little bit of this uh, impression, you know, when you took a boat and went down the river, as a boat, Kalim tells us, and see on both sides this riverfront buildings placed on terraces. Hmm. So, right. And when we look at the plan of the Taj Mahal, it's exactly this design which is used for this great monumental uh, mausoleum, because the main building is not in the center of the garden, like in the tomb of Humayun or like in the tomb of Akbar Sikandra. Yes. but on a terrace overlooking the river. So, uh, and the Chahabach, uh, which is planned very regularly, you know, obviously, Shadahani principles, <laughs> is on the landward side. And not only that, yes. this uh, scheme, you know, riverfront uh, terrace, rectangle, and square Chahabach, is yes. then also used for the for the mundane complex, you mm. know, on, for, for, on, uh, which is not fully preserved, 
for the forecourt and then for a bazaar and caravansaray complex, which takes up the, 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 the scheme of the Charbach, you know, of the cross axial arrangement. But here, the, the pathways of the garden are translated into bazaar streets and right. the four garden plots into caravansarays. Right. So, this, uh, so it's a magnification and monumentalization of a typical Agra garden, you know, takes a typical to create the outstanding in, yes, the, in the Dutch. So it's, yeah. so it is a house, yeah, it is a garden house, yes. but on a monumental scale and expressed in perfect forms. You know, suitable for a building which should be ideal of the other world. Right. Okay. Yes. Um, And I'm also very interested in this idea of of tomb building. I mean, it was seemingly the duty of the Mughals to to build their deceased fathers a tomb upon accession to the throne, you know, and and is Taj Mahal in that sense an anomaly here? I mean, you know, emperors got their tombs and certain nobles got their tombs, but wives um, usually did not, and certainly not this elaborate. Is there a precedence for this? And I don't, you know, particularly um, want to get into the love story per se, but um, for sure it is interesting when it leads to such an exquisite building. So, yes, I mean, where does this fascination for tomb building come from and and then building a tomb for for um, a wife? Is that is that something that we see precedence? You know, we have uh, great tombs uh, for females also in Central Asia. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, but obviously nothing on such a monumental scale. <laughs> and. Yeah, it obviously, you know, I was always a bit mistrusting what, uh, what regarding this love story of Shah Jahan, I felt it was sort of blown up by the picturesque travelers <laughs> of, you know, early 19th century. This was a romantic age, you know, yeah. where in, in Germany, the young Werther killed himself and many other young men also committed suicides out of unhappy love. <laughs> so, but when one looks at the, again at the imperial history, yeah, mm. you know, which was written under Shah Jahan's close supervision, and which contains the subject he wanted to hand, hand down to, to posterity. Mm. So on the one hand, exact description of buildings, yeah, and then other issues, but suddenly history stops, you know, and Masnavi comes in. So the historians describe Shah Jahan's grief, you know, like Nizami did, you know, uh, with Laila and Majinun. Yes. So we, we learn that he did not uh, appear in audience, which was against his principle because he himself had established court ceremonial, a very strict court ceremonial. So obviously Shah Jahan had indeed a great passion for Mumtaz Mahal mm. and uh, and the building of this mausoleum, where he consulted, you know, for all his building projects, he would meet with his architect. He was really personally involved. We don't learn this from Jahangir or from Akbar. 
Nobilan said Akbar was helping out, you know, carrying heavy stones. But we don't learn that he was involved in the designing process. Mm. So, so Shah Jahan sat with his team and they worked out the design and the plans for this great uh, mausoleum on a gigantic scale. It should be, we get this, you know, that the travelers of the whole world yes. would be astonished. Yeah. Yes. Yes. And also this, you know, this bazaar and caravan, Caravanserai complex, yes. a contemporary European traveler tells us that uh, he built it so that the traveler should see the, you know, the mausoleum mm. and, and, and bring uh, the message of it or talk about it uh, to the whole world. Yes. So the reception in a way is built into, into, the, into the, the complex itself. Great, thank you for that. Um, I think um, I would like to now move on to your article in the book, which is titled yes. Palaces, Gardens and Property Rights under Shah Jahan and Architecture as a Window into Mughal Legal Customs and Practices. How interesting. Never have I seen um, a, a historian in India delving into legal issues in, in um, such depth and you get into the ambiguities around land ownership in Mughal India and, and you address it historiographically. But how did land ownership differ um, within the different social groups and, and how was ownership of a home defined? How did these groups perceive their rights over land in that time? Obviously, I was primarily interested in imperial architecture, but uh, so then I noted whenever is a palace of a Mughal noble, or, no, no palaces, because they didn't build palaces. This was something which came up, mainly gardens. Yes. And when, when one assembled all this evidence, I could see they could not own, you know, that as a properties, as a gardens on an inheritable basis. Mm. So then, uh, this problem struck me, and when you put all the evidence together, then you see a clear pattern evolving, that mm. it means when the nobles died under, under Shah Jahan, the property went back to the emperor, to the state. Yeah? So it was sheeted. And only when they build tombs, mm. you know, on their properties and, and put a wax on it, it was a possibility, you know, to keep it in the, in the family. But especially this aspect had been not studied at all. Yes, you know, yes. all this discussion about land ownership and yes. which we had in the 19th century did yes. not use Mughal sources right. and did not uh, use uh, uh, consider the differentiation. So there were different social groups who mm. had different uh, uh, rights right. on land. Yes. And for yeah. the Mughal elite, Yes. The astonishing uh, uh, revelation was the higher a, a noble was, mm. the lesser his right to uh, to to uh, uh, keep in, in inheritable property, to bequeath it to his heirs. 
Right. So, uh, right. So how the nobility felt about it, mm-hmm. yeah, I was able to find only one statement mm-hmm. by a, a novel of, of Akbar. Mm-hmm. Uh, his, his pen name was Nami. He was also a poet. He did lots of inscriptions for Akbar's building. And he, in, in, in the Punjab, he builds a lot of mosques, you know, and, 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 and sarais, and I don't know what, but no palace. Mm-hmm. And when he was asked why he didn't build the palace, he said, oh, beware, because when I die, it will go back to the state. <laughs> so I put, this, I put this as a motto of, you know, uh, before my article. So how I mean I'm I this one sentence that you mentioned you know that that the higher up um, in the 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 nobility that you go the 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 land rights are lesser and um, that's that's so interesting um so how did then normal people decide how much and where to build how how were their boundaries kind of defined we know for instance one instance. Said uh, Shah Jahan, you know, when he, uh, you know, when his daughter Jahanara built a mosque at Agra, and to access it, they also created a large uh, piazza between the mosque and the fort, mm. and also, uh, you know, widened the Bazaar Street leading to the mosque. Mm. They, they were buying the houses of the normal mm. house owners. Uh, in in order to be correct, you know. So it seems that the rights to to uh, to own property of normal people were more respected by the emperors than than of his of his elite. Yeah, something which I noticed in this uh, context. But obviously, it would be an area. Uh, we're studying also how it was later handled, you know, in Shahjahanabad and Aurangzeb and. and Mm. Uh, yeah, obviously yeah. there's a lot to do, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. Can we now bring back something that you mentioned earlier, which was um, field work and survey work? I, I, wa- I would like to talk about that in, in relation to what your opinion is on the condition of art history or architectural history in India. And I mean, you know, since the 70s, you have been extensively documenting surviving structures from the Mughal um, period and and what is that kind of work um, like and and you know especially the reign of Shah Jahan being so scarcely documented um, what is it like to collect data and and what process did you have to go through? I mean, what kind of collaborations or what kind of hurdles or, you know, things like that? What is making a book like this um, take? Yeah. When I came to India and got interested in in the palace architecture of the Mughals, I noticed that, you know, uh, plans were done, but were difficult to access because the archives of the archaeological uh, survey of India were not, uh, you know, easily accessible. And also, I had the feeling that many buildings hadn't been documented at all. Mm. So I started, uh, I realized I had to do my own surveys. 
Mm. And I was looking, uh, you know, for architects to work with me, mm. because which was not easy because it's one thing to work on the desk, you know, and it's other other to go out in the field and be surrounded by the, I don't know how many people trying to survey a building. Yeah. And I was was very lucky uh, after I, I, I worked with several architects to find Richard Barrow. And since 1982, you know, he, he works with me on my project of documenting the, the palaces of Shah Jahan. We, we went uh, systematically through uh, the histories of Shah Jahan to find out about his architectural project. Mm -hmm. So my work was basically uh, sort of, uh, you know, placed on these two pillars on the one hand, you know, going through the text and on the other on fieldwork. Mm. So these two persons have helped me uh, very much in my, in my work, Dr. Schaffrey and Richard Barrow. Mm. But obviously, I needed permission from the Archaeological Survey of India. <laughs> Which, so I had very, I mean, uh, on the whole, I can say I got permission and was able to do what I wanted to do. And, and in the end, I even got permission to survey the Taj Mahal with Richard as the first Western scholar since India's independence. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, who, 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 who was able to carry out this, uh, this uh, survey. Because I had been working on the palaces, hmm. but I realized, you know, the ultimate architectural expression of Shah Jahan was a Taj Mahal, right. and in order to understand his architecture, I would have to understand the Taj Mahal. Mm. So this was a great challenge because I also had sort of, you know, because until then there was no complete architectural survey of the Taj, and I right. also understood why, because I was in awe of this building, you know, <laughs> and obviously uh, scholars before had me had been. Uh, as well, but we started slowly and slowly, you know, with the tape, and we had this uh, measuring device, disto, yes. uh, on, on just throughout 10 years, you know, we did one building after the other. Right, right. well, I think this is, this has been wonderful. Thank you so much for your time and for talking to us about your work and there is so much to think about and uh, and unpack from this conversation that we've had. Um, I mean, you write with such immense clarity, and the book is really quite interesting. And it and it deals with issues that are being addressed for the very first time. So it was it was quite exciting to you know go through all these varied articles on on Shah Jahan and his reign. And um, yes, thank you so much, Eva. Thank you for talking to us. <laughs> No, thank you for inviting me. And what more can I also wish, you know, than uh, to, to hear that what he does is useful. <laughs> Hope you enjoyed this episode. Do not miss to like, share and subscribe to our podcast. Available on all your favorite podcast apps.